Ivan the Terrible, or more properly Ivan, is a name that conjures up brutality and ruthlessness in the popular imagination. Over 60 million people have watched a video on YouTube, which is one of the epic rap battles of history, in which Ivan boasts lyrically of his violence, including the death of his own son. More seriously, Western scholars insist that Ivan did create the Aprashnima, a policy of mass repression and execution. But in 2016, the Russian city of Aryol inaugurated the first ever monument to the Tsar, celebrating how he protected his people and the Orthodox faith from enemies and expanded the country's frontiers. Russia's culture minister at the time argued that Ivan's violence was a myth, his name having been tarnished by Western travellers and writers. Representations of Ivan Vasilievich, Grand Prince of Moscow and Sovereign of all Russia from 1533, and Tsar Ivan IV from 1547, are evidently not clear-cut. How then should we tell his story? A wise place to start is by challenging simple binaries of good and evil, and instead seeking to cast light on a man who was both complex and fascinating. To do that, I'm joined by Dr. Charles Halperin from Indiana, the USA. He's the author of many titles on Russian history, including Russia and the Golden Horde, the Mongol impact on medieval Russian history, Ivan the Terrible in Russian historical memory since 1991, and most recently, Ivan the Terrible, Free to Reward and Free to Punish, which was published in 2019 by the University of Pittsburgh Press. Dr. Halperin, welcome to Not Just the Tudors. Delighted to have you joining us. I've longed to find somebody to talk about this period, and I'm fascinated with Ivan the Terrible. And the fact that we get a chance to talk about him today is really wonderful. Thank you. My pleasure. Can we start with some sense of context? I suppose the first thing to think about is whether the Russia we're talking about in the 16th century is geographically different to the Russia we talk about today. Can you give us a sense of the geography? The area that Ivan ruled is still part of Russia, but most of what we think of as Russia was not yet conquered by Muscovy, as foreigners, Europeans called it in the 16th century. It was only really just the close of Ivan the Terrible's reign that the Russians intruded into Siberia, which is a huge geographic expanse. Crimea does not become part of Russia until the late 18th century. The other areas that were in the process of being conquered or would be conquered in the 17th century are mostly now part of Ukraine, or they should be part of Ukraine, <laughs> and part of Belarus. But the heartland the Mesopotamia of the Volga and Oka rivers, which is the core of the Muscovite state, was ruled by Ivan. He inherited it. His conquests extended Russia down the Volga to Kazan, which is still part of Russia. So he is responsible for that southeast expansion. But his attempt to conquer to the west, to what is now Estonia and Latvia, failed. And that area did not become part of Russia until Peter the Great, which is over a century later. Russia's geographic boundaries were almost always in the state of constant flux. And 
What was government and society like in Russia on the eve of Ivan coming to power? One of the characteristic features of 16th century Muscovite history is that nobody agrees with anybody else about anything. In my terminology, Muscovy was, of course, a hereditary monarchy, which is the one thing it has in common with nearly everyone else in Europe. To what extent it was an autocracy, that is a state in which the ruler had unlimited authority, is a matter of considerable discussion. On the one hand, some people think that Muscovy was governed by a hegemonic state which controlled everything. But I think there is little question but that it couldn't be because it simply lacked the technology and communications and transportation to pull it off. There's another theory of Muscovy which argues that sometimes unlike Europe to the west of Muscovite's borders, it was ruled collegially, that is, by the czar and the aristocracy together. This goes back to the cliche that early modern nation states were built by the ruler in alliance with the bourgeoisie against the aristocracy. The current thinking devolves upon a question to which there is, as I say, no consensus. And that is the question of Russian exceptionalism. Was Russia like Europe in the 16th century or completely different than Europe in the 16th century? To some Europeans, Muscovy is barbaric. It's like the Ottoman Empire. Most certainly, it is not a constitutional monarchy. Never having experienced Roman law, how could it possibly be? It's governed largely by what it calls custom, which is also common to the West, of course. The most radical changes can be justified as being a continuation of the past. That's also not a distinguishing feature of Russia in the 16th century. But the question is, what was really going on? And the answer is, we may or may not know, but we certainly don't agree on what we know. Trying to place Russia within the context of Europe, in most cases, fails at the evidentiary level. The volume of sources and the nature of the sources we have are so different that drawing lines between them and what's going on in Europe is very difficult. 16th century Muscovy, again, did not derive from the Roman Empire, had no direct exposure to the Italian Renaissance in Latin or Greek, and in the 16th century had no abstract political theory. The only political theory, so to speak, is basically religious. The ruler is supposed to be pious, but the ruler answers to God, not to some institution, either of the aristocracy or of class of the whole. The question is, what is the custom and what is the exception? Russian historians do not agree on whether Ivan himself is the exception. That is, is the level of cruelty that he imposed the norm for Russian history, which is what the advocates of Russia as a totalitarian state insist on, or is Ivan the Terrible the exception to Muscovite history, where rulers usually consulted? Now, of course, consulting can be a formality or it can be a reality. And the reality is in most of Europe, the same is also true. I mean, Henry VIII can pretend to listen to Parliament, though he cannot pretend to listen to Parliament. And whether he says he's listening doesn't always mean he's listening or not. So that the very definition of Muscovite political culture is contested. I happen to think the solution is that it's both, that it's both collegial and authoritarian in a ever-changing flux. So Ivan became Grand Prince of Moscow and sovereign of all Russia 
1533, after the death of his father. And he was just three years old. And the first 13 years of his rule are as a minor. And as we know, a minority is often a dangerous time. And these early years were very tumultuous. I want to know how you think this period in which his mother died and you've got nobles vying for control shaped him as a person. And do you see his coming of age and his coronation in 1547 as marking a new era? The best approach, but also the most difficult in terms of Ivan, is to see his entire reign as evolutionary. One of the great fallacies of many of the treatments of his reign is that they assume he was born a sadistic tyrant. Well, no three-year-old is a sadistic tyrant. <laughs> but the periodization usually runs, that Ivan's minority runs to 1547 when he's crowned, and that the period of the good Ivan, when he's listening to his good advisors, runs to about 1564, although it's problematic between 1560 and 1564. And then in 1564, he begins the path to mass terror. The problem is that there are indications in his behavior when he's supposedly a good guy of the kind of Ivan that we associate with the bad Ivan. For example, I think one of the major traits of Ivan's character politically, which is typical for 16th century Europe, is that the ruler proves how much power he has by acting arbitrarily, by acting as if he does not need to explain why he's doing what he's doing. He's not answerable. Usually this means doing something negative towards his members of the elite. Why did he put so-and-so in jail? I have the right to put anybody I want in jail. Don't talk to me. Ivan starts doing that before 1547. He's still in minority and he's still ordering executions or various other severe penalties, like cutting out someone's tongue for saying the wrong thing. And yet during the period when he's supposedly the greatest autocratic tyrant, he occasionally consults people and institutes new reforms. So that at the very least, the periodization is approximate. So even if we're not to think about them in terms of period-specific behavior, nevertheless, our childhoods are formative to our characters in many ways. And so I wonder if you have a sense from your reading of the evidence how those early years affected him. Well, the two theories are that the first period didn't affect him. It only happened because he was not yet old enough and experienced enough to put an end to it. And the other theory is that he drew the conclusion that cooperating with people just didn't get the job done. And the only way he could accomplish what he wanted to accomplish was by coercion. Ivan did not necessarily learn one lesson from what happened during the period of reforms. What strikes me most in the contrast between the late 1540s to 1550s and the middle 1560s through the rest of his reign is something that's not very tangible, but it's what I would call mood. And I think that Ivan and Muscovy shared the same mood at the same time. And the mood during the 1550s and 1560s is optimistic. You don't undertake reforms and expansion unless you're confident of your ability to, to succeed. And the mood in the latter part of his reign gets seriously depressed. 
And some of the extremism is probably Yvonne's frustration at the change. The great cultural achievements of Yvonne's reign all take place during the 1550s and early 1560s. And then either the money runs out or the energy runs out, or in my terms, you would say the optimism runs out. So tell me about what those cultural developments were in the 1550s, in the years immediately after his coronation. Well, the most well-known achievement is the construction of St. Basil's Cathedral. It is, in terms of its architecture, unique in terms of its grandeur. It is a statement of success, of self-conscious belief that you are a pious state and blessed by God. And Yvonne's coronation is always emphasized. Yvonne is selected by God, approved by God, and rules by God's will. There's also other construction of other cathedrals and construction in monasteries. Those are great literary achievements. These are not transmutable because they're not translated. The most famous is unfinished. It is something called the Illustrated Chronicle Compilation. If you're planning like a 12-volume manuscript work covering all of world history and all of Russian history with 10,000 miniature illustrations, you've got to be pretty confident you can sustain the effort. And they started that during the 1550s, and it peters out, stops, and it's never finished. This also directly affects our problems understanding Ivan's reign because it and other chronicle endeavors all end in about 1563. And for the rest of Yvonne's reign, we have to rely upon much less extensive documentation. Of course, at the time, early modern Europe is in the grip of the Protestant and then counter-reformation. And if we think about domestic policy in that first part of Yvonne's reign, whilst we have that evidence that you've mentioned, do we see the Russian Orthodox Church facing any similar challenges? And do we know whether Ivan is a reformer or a conservative in this point of time in religious terms? There is a somewhat increase in accusations of heresy. And there are numerous scholars who legitimately believe that these were influenced by Protestants. Whether these people were even heretics is open to debate. Why? Because we don't have any written works by them. What we know about them almost entirely is what they were accused of by their enemies. And people persecuting heretics are not necessarily known for their truthfulness. What we can say, although again, there are probably some exceptions, is that such heresy did not rise to the level of popular dissemination of the Reformation. The first mass contrary religious movement in Russian history is in the 17th century, the old belief. Nevertheless, even in terms of size, a modest heretical movement could have strong consequences, particularly if it's infected people who are part of the upper echelons of society. A dozen peasants doing something means nothing. A dozen clerics doing something is something else. Muscovy, Russia, is completely unlike everywhere else in Europe if you have to ask the question and people disagree whether the ruler was literate. I can't think of anyone in Eastern or Western Europe in the 16th century about whom you would not have sufficient evidence to know whether they're literate or not. Well, there's a case that Ivan was not literate. If we're trying to judge what Ivan thinks about something, if he's illiterate, we've got a real problem because the texts written in his name are not his texts. 
we can argue that from his behavior, he was conservative. That is, at the very least, he supports repression of accused heretics by the Russian Orthodox Church, which, since it's a religious institution, which does not have an institutional inquisition, relies upon secular authority for physical force. When Ivan's troops conquer part of Livonia, they encounter an accused and convicted heretic from Muscovy who had successfully skipped the border. He's burned at the stake. This was the secular arm carrying out the wishes of the ecclesiastical arm. Ivan, on the other hand, shows some characteristics, again, dependent a little bit upon whether he can read and write, which indicate familiarity with theology and a curiosity which is not always hostile, but mostly hostile towards other forms of Christianity, which the Russian Orthodox Church disapproved of. He has no problem dealing with some Protestants. He has no problem with the English being Anglicans. When he can use Protestantism as a political propaganda, when he's invading Lutherans in Estonia, he plays that card full tilt. He can be very tolerant of Muslims who enter his service. When he deals with Muslims, he emphasizes, there are Muslims in my service, I treat them well, they can practice their faith, you have no reason to be angry at me. He uses this particularly towards the Ottoman Empire, which he is probably terrified, after all, the strongest military power in Europe in the 16th century. He sometimes uses it in dealing with Tartar groups, just trying to avoid the annoyance of having to deal with them militarily. On the other hand, after conquering Kazan, he writes the King of Poland, the Holy Roman Emperor, the Pope, triumph of Christianity over the Crescent. We've killed all those filthy infidel Muslims. Now, when is he being sincere? Well, both times, of course. We know that Ivan's lifestyle is highly religious. He probably attends the liturgy almost every day. He observes all the fasts. He honors all the saints. He makes donations to monasteries, et cetera, et cetera. But if you ask me, what does he believe the interest? How are we supposed to know? Neither for Ivan nor for anyone else in 16th century Russia do we have any private papers at all. No memoirs, no autobiographies, no personal correspondence. Who do you trust? One of the most significant documents which people argue about is the correspondence between Ivan and an aristocrat who skipped the border and then supposedly corresponded with him and said, you're a filthy tyrant. He responds, you're doomed to hell because I'm ghosted by God. The debate is largely in religious terms, who is a good ruler, who is a good advisor. But the question is, of course, are they authentic? If they're not, they don't tell us anything about Ivan. I've argued what may or may not be considered the middle ground. The question is not, does Ivan believe this? Because if we believe that, he was extremely literate in religious texts. He knows scripture. He knows patristics. Like everyone else in religious polemics, he finds what he wants in them, but let that pass. But if you begin with the premise I begin with, that pretty much like every other ruler I've read a little bit about in 16th century Europe, the man's a congenital liar. If he's a congenital liar, why are you bothering to ask, what does he really believe? <laughs> I mean, you're dealing with a mass murderer. What do you expect?
I'm James Patton Rogers, a war historian, advisor to the UN and NATO, and host of the Warfare Podcast from History Hit. Join me twice a week, every week, as we look at the conflicts that have defined our past and the ones shaping our future. We talk to award-winning journalists. ISIS, this peculiar strain that we all came to know very well in the mid-2010s, really got its start because of the US invasion of Iraq. We hear from the people who were actually there. The Sudanese have been incredible. They have managed to get supplies to people, to individuals who are suffering. And we learn from the remarkable historians shining a light on forgotten histories. For the most part, the millions of people who were taken to those camps were immediately murdered. Auschwitz combined the functions of death camp and concentration camp and slave labor. Join us on the Warfare Podcast from History Hit twice a week, every week, wherever you get your podcasts. This is After Dark. Myths, misdeeds and the paranormal. The podcast that takes you to the shadiest corners of the past, unpicking history's spookiest, strangest and most sinister stories. I'm Maddie Pelling. And I'm Anthony Delaney. Join us every Monday and Thursday and we'll take a look at the darker side of history from haunted pubs to Houdini to witch trials and arsenic-laced breakfasts. Follow After Dark, Myths, Misdeeds and the Paranormal wherever you get your podcasts. Brought to you by History Hit. say we should take a similar approach to thinking about his foreign policy? Because you've mentioned the relationship or the front, I suppose, in Livonia, present-day Latvia and Estonia, and you've mentioned the Tatars, so that's to the southeast and south. Should we regard Ivan as, I suppose, both aggressive and defensive when it comes to foreign policy? Well, as always, you have to draw distinctions. On the one hand, we have the idea that Ivan was continuing the grand Russian imperialist aggressiveness that begins with his grandfather and hasn't ended to this day. Unfortunately, that kind of theory leaves out all of Russian history, which means there's nothing to talk about. Definitely imperialist expansion to the south and southeast against the Tatars has a defensive element. As they are mutual raids both ways, you can argue, as I would, that conquest was not obligatory. It would have been possible for him to put his energy into building better defensive military means. But there is something about a defensive nature there. Livonia was not a military threat, period. That is an aggressive war. Again, we know what he said the motives were. We know what other people said his motives were. Probably they're a mixture of it. He was not trying to get a window on the West like Peter the Great. That's anachronistic. Ivan's entire worldview is totally incompatible with Peter's view as an enlightened monarch of the early 18th century. I think there's a strong economic motive. He wants to cut out the German middlemen who are taking some of the profits he wants from foreign trade. On the other hand, people argue he wasn't interested in trade at all. This is entirely political. He's trying to make himself look good. What war can be attributed to only one motive? But the contrast between the expansion to the West and the expansion to the South and East, I think, is valid. No one needs to argue that Ivan was a consistent ruler. The expansion to Siberia was accidental. It was neither defensive nor aggressive. 
It's just a couple of Cossacks get lucky. What you have to realize is policy was set at the center by the same people. And the fact that they would deal differently with different sectors of foreign policy indicates their pragmatism. And I suppose that is part of your answer. If we were to think about the relationship with the English, because in 1551, we have under Edward VI, the Muscovy Company establishing relations between Russia and England. And we have stories about the efforts of Richard Chancellor and Hugh Willoughby and others making the journey from England. And the question often is, what do we make of Ivan's role in here? Do we think he's making the partnership for trade purposes or because he needs allies against the Russian nobility? But what do you think was going on there? Trade between England and Muscovy was much more important to England than it was to Russia. The Russians weren't against it, but they know by establishing a monopoly, the goal of the English is to rip them off. Ivan was more than smart enough to do that. Why does he put up with it? Ivan does not have a Baltic fleet, and he will go to whatever lengths are necessary to try to persuade the English fleet to try to take out his enemies. One of his main blind spots is he never quite realized the English are never going to do that. The English can make much more money not taking sides in Ivan's wars, and they're not about to give that up. Moreover, the English, the Dutch, and to some extent the French know exactly what they're doing. They refuse to let their goods be transported in Russian ships. They want to stop Ivan from getting a Baltic fleet because they know it's their ace in the hole. So from Ivan's point of view, I would suspect the strategic military element is more important. Although he benefits from and has no problem with the trade. But when he's unhappy with Elizabeth refusing to give him military aid, what does he do? He shuts down the Muscovy Company. This kind of stuff continues in the 17th century. When the Russians react to the execution of Charles I, they say, we will not trade with regicides. Well, they would have, if they wanted to, they'd have traded with regicides. It was an excuse to shut down the English monopoly. Let's say they've got ulterior motives. That doesn't change. Too many attempts of analyzing Ivan try to make him only one thing at one time. He's either all good or all bad. It's much more productive to view Ivan as a complex, indeed contradictory mixture of virtues and vices, which are in constant combat with each other. A man who I think was the smartest politician in Russia at the time, if he had aristocratic opponents, and I suspect he had some, fewer than he executed, but never mind, he outplays them hands down. But his political motives are always a mixture. And he can play whatever card he wants, which he thinks fits. So you've pointed out the problems of periodization that historians have traditionally viewed his reign in two halves, and the second half starting from 1564 being when it takes a sinister turn and when the title, The Terrible, becomes more fitting. Could we have a think about the hardships that befell Russia during this time that we need to appreciate before we rush to put labels on Ivan? Fortunately, the hardships are very well studied and very well appreciated because we have documentation. We have cadastres conducted primarily to find out who can pay taxes. We indicate depopulation 
in the countryside of in some provinces up to 90%. Mostly this has been taken literally. 90% of the peasants there either died or left. That the economy is in a severe depression goes beyond doubt. These people can't pay taxes whether they're alive or not or whether they're there or not. There's nobody there paying taxes. We would also judge the consequences of the punitive expeditions, really waging war on his own northwest Russian cities, particularly in Novgorod. Not everyone agrees on the level of destruction. We do know that thousands of people were executed, and we do know there was an enormous amount of looting going on. Whether Novgorod was permanently destroyed is something else. I tend to doubt that. But the level of destruction was very high, without question. Proportionally, the group that suffers most is the elite, because they're the ones who are physically in proximity and therefore greatest risk. The percentage of aristocrats by ours executed is a lot higher than the percentage of peasants executed. The flaws in thinking that Ivan was directing his terror only against the elite, this is not true. They made no social distinctions who they were going to destroy. Nor would you expect them to. If he's trying to destroy the economic base of an aristocratic landowner, you wipe out his lands. You burn and loot everything, and you kill all the peasants who grow fruit for him. I mean, it's obvious. The level of destruction was very severe, and it's one of the reasons that compels Ivan to accept a humiliating truce with Poland-Lithuanian and Livonian War. How long that depression lasted is another question. And the purpose of this mass repression, this mass execution, was what, in your view? It was nothing so simple as to destroy the aristocracy. First of all, because he does not destroy the aristocracy. Second of all, because he does not need the accoutrements of the oppression to carry out that level of destruction of the elite. I think that the key to the Aprishna is really not political in the normal sense of the word. That is, he did it because he was the only way to get the authority to kill people he wanted to kill. He wanted to create a separate realm for himself for reasons that have a great deal to do with ideology. That is, you look at the Aprishna, he's looking for something more than political power because he had enough political power to conduct repression without the appreciation of a separate estate, black clothes, black horses, dogs' heads, brooms, a brotherhood, a separate palace in Moscow, which no non-appreciative are permitted to enter. These are symbolic policies. They have to do with Ivan's desire for autonomy in a sense that my mentor, Michael Chonyavsky, interpreted as renaissance that is a expression of individual personality. The problem is that whatever Ivan was trying to do personally, he could only accomplish it politically. And by doing it politically, he unleashed destructive forces that threatened to escape his control and partially did escape his control. And that's why he abolished the appreciative. I've argued that it's to do with Ivan trying to avoid the responsibilities of being ruler in an ideological sense. That is, to be a good ruler, you have to do bad things. You can't prove a theory that abstract. Ivan's statements about the appreciation range from the propagandistic, everybody I executed was guilty, which is a lie, to more or less ignoring reality. When the 
Polish-Lithuanian delegations asked the Russian diplomats, why is Ivan establishing the Yaprichina? They respond without blinking, there is no such thing as the Yaprichina in Muscovy, which is remarkable even for a diplomat to be able to lie like that. And we don't have any unfiltered expression from Ivan as to what he thought he was doing and why he thought he was doing it. You've given us a sense of the complexity of this man. And the concluding remarks in your book are just wonderful. If I may quote one phrase, you write, Ivan was sacrilegious, temperamental, stubborn and cruel. He was also pious, erudite, perspicacious, witty, playful and philanthropic. He was always flawed and contradictory, in short, human. Do you have a sense then when and why the phrase Ivan the Terrible became to be used as a political football? It was not during his lifetime. During his lifetime, to describe a ruler in Russian as Grozny really means awe-inspiring. It's a compliment. It's not a pejorative. He does not really acquire that name well until the 17th century, but its real pejorative and negative ambience is a product of the Enlightenment. If you're asking not about the epithet in its later meaning, but about Ivan's image, Ivan's image is forged in his own time by his foreign enemies and his domestic enemies. He is treated as the ultimate evil. And Ivan's image has remained a polemical football ever since. He was, after all, fighting against Europeans, and his characterization as evil is war propaganda which is not known for its delicacy. In modern times, certainly second half of the 20th century, historians made quite clear that the epithet Grozny was not negative in Russia in Ivan's time. This has had no impact whatsoever upon Ivan's image, (laughs) neither in Russia nor in the West, because it's really how you interpret, number one, his behavior, once you've decided which of his behavior he is responsible for rather than evil advisors. And it's a judgment of his personality. The one thing which I also conveyed in the passage that you quoted is that Ivan has always struck me as the charismatic ruler. His image is charismatic, is embedded in the literature which excoriated him. And he dominates the 16th century in Russia the way Henry VIII dominated England in his own time, the way Elizabeth dominated England in her own time. That is, the extremes of interpretation of his behavior are an extrapolation from the significance we impute to a ruler who was just that impressive and dominating. Finally then, even though Russian archives have been opened following the end of the Cold War, I realize that much since has been reclassified or is difficult to access. And you've talked about some of the problems of not having ego literature, as we call it, autobiographical documentation for this period. Given this and given the fact that we have this political football we've just discussed, do you think we will ever be able to arrive at a definitive history of Ivan? No, although... The archives at different periods have been closed to Western observers. Russian historians of Ivan the Terrible have produced scholarly works of a thoroughly admirable quality. Those historians have mined the archives for every ounce of gold they're worth. A lot of sources have not been published. 
And certainly their publication would make them available to scholars who will use them to investigate subjects other than those that the Russian historians have investigated. But we have a very good idea of the kinds of sources that are to be found. Occasionally, something fluke may crop up, but mostly what we find could be described as more of the same. More diplomatic papers, more charters, more saints' lives. To square the circle about Ivan would require finding the kinds of sources that 16th century Russians simply did not generate. And therefore, we have to resign ourselves to an imperfect understanding of his rule. Everything we learn helps. It's not that such research is useless. It's made major discoveries and will continue to do so. But to hope even for a consensus is probably mislaid. But then again, as long as we agree to disagree professionally in a professional manner, that's fine. (laughs) Thank you so much. That's been a really wonderful introduction. And the sense of the work that's being done and the debates that exist around this extraordinary character from history. Thank you so much for your time. You're very welcome. And thanks to my producer, Rob Weinberg, my researcher, Esther Arnott, and Joseph Knight, who edited this episode. And thanks to you for listening to Not Just the Tudors from History Hit. We're always eager to hear your suggestions for podcast subjects. So drop me a line at notjustthetudors at historyhit.com or on Twitter at notjusttudors. Also, if you're in need of an extra hit between podcasts, do sign up to our newsletter, Tudor Tuesday. Details of how to do that are in the notes below this podcast. And please rate, rank, bestow multiple stars and comment on this podcast wherever you listen, including on Spotify. It really helps more people find not just the Tudors. History is full of extraordinary people, the Tudors being just a handful. In my latest film on History Hit, we meet Bess of Hardwick and go inside the incredible house that she built, a house that defines the elegance and grandeur of the Elizabethan age, a house fit for a woman who climbed to the top of the Tudor social ladder. To find out more about the life of Bess and many more fascinating figures from the past, sign up via the link in the description with the code TUDORS for an exclusive discount.